Due to some violent content, parental discretion is advised. It's time, America. Mr. and Mr. North and South American, all the ships at sea, let's go to press. Not only will it set a new standard for excellence, but it will be a departure from all existing patterns. Already, the nation's press is greeting the project with enthusiasm, and I don't hesitate to call it 1967's most exciting program concept. Cats and Kittens, I'm Tom Gully, and welcome to the Tom Gully Show podcast. Like many scholars, theologians, men of letters, you're probably perplexed and confused. Just what is the Tom Gully Show podcast? Well, honorable men and women have pondered this question for centuries. However, you are in luck. I happen to be the world's leading authority on the subject. It's the very best of the stuff I do on The Tom Gully Show every Monday through Friday on the webcast you can hear at thetomgullyshow.com. I take the succulent filet of those shows and put it on a podcast. So you can listen to it on your iPod while taking a dump on top of a mountain in Tibet. Or at a funeral. You know, for your convenience. And this time we've got an incredible interview. Ron Eckerman was the tour manager for Leonard Skinner during their rise to glory in the mid-70s, and he survived that tragic plane crash on October 20th, 1977. He details dozens of inside stories and anecdotes in his book, Turn It Up, which puts you right there behind the scenes on tour with the band, available at turnitupbook.com. And he's here to share those recollections along with his first-person account of the plane crash. When we return... Mr. Ron Eckerman. Some call you fat, some call you corpulent, others call you portly. I call you a customer and a friend for life. Come on in to Victor Newsies. If you got a fat ass, I ain't gonna say nothing about it. We'll suit you, you'll suit us. You come into Victor Newsies, I guarantee you're gonna leave with a suit. Come on in, you'll save a ton at Victor Newsies. I ain't bullshitting. Victor Ozzy's Highway 5 out by the mall. You're listening to the Tom Gully Show. And what, what's your what's your what's your radio show? Where are your radio show hosts at? Where are your radio hosts? Where are you at? Where are you at? What's your what's your show? What's it called? Is it the podcast that's non-existent? You know what? When it launches, can I be on? Can I be on? Please, 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 please. Sure thing, crazy lady. Just send an email to tom at thetomgullyshow.com. Boy, I have never met somebody with a more self-serving, pompous media blowhard that you give Rush Limbaugh a good name. 
Well, Ron Eckerman served as the tour manager for several of rock music's biggest acts and was serving in that position for the legendary group Leonard Skinner when immeasurable tragedy struck the music world as the band's plane crashed on October 20th, 1977, and he survived that crash, detailing his accounts in a fascinating book about his experiences with the band, among other things. And the book is called Turn It Up. Welcome to the program, Ron, or should I call you as the band predominantly did, Ron Eckerman. One word. <laughs> you know what? That has really caught on since this book came out. So you might as well call me Ron Eckerman like everybody else. Okay. It's really a pleasure to be here, too. Well, thank you. I understand you're a native of Houston? I am. I Although I've lived in Los Angeles for the last 35 years, I'm uh, recently moving back to the East Coast. Okay. So, um, um, the, yeah, my time in Houston hasn't been that uh, much over the years, but I, I was born and raised there. Well, that's all that counts. God bless Texas. Yes, indeed. Um, now, I was thumbing through the courses at the local community college, and dogged if I could not find a course called Rock and Roll Tour Manager 101. How does one become a, a rock and roll tour manager, particularly back in the days when... I'm just going to say that live performances and rock and roll tours were a bigger part of the music, I feel, than they are now. Well, you know, it's a funny thing, the way that business has changed. Uh, back in that t at that time, 1970s, uh, the tours were designed to support records and albums. So you went out and people were kind of lucky if they could make any money out on the road. Because ticket skills were five fifty, six fifty, seven fifty. I think our top ticket ever was about nine dollars. And imagine getting into concerts these days for nine dollars. Yeah. Unheard of. But so you know, back then it was to uh, support the records, and the record sales were where it was where it was at. You know, everybody wanted to sell records. Well, now record sales are just not happening. You know, people download, people share. Uh, music and you know that's fine with me my my own opinion is music has been free for centuries and it's only the last hundred years that it's been monetized and people have had to pay for music so to me you know it's fine you know share all the music you want I think music should be free anyway but uh, back to the question it's um, you know so nowadays you tour to make money and basically you don't make much money off of uh, records so it's kind of reversed how did you get into the actual tour managing of, of groups? Did you start associating yourself with bands and found you were good at it, or, or how did that happen? Oh, that was kind of odd. I was working in Houston at the time for a company called Wild West Productions, and we handled all the concert, concerts. Well, not all, but 90% of the shows were produced by Wild West Productions. And we handled Texas and Louisiana, Oklahoma, uh, Arkansas, New Mexico. So we had the the uh, Southwest, and uh, some associates there decided to get into the tour management business. And so because I was staging a lot of concerts, I met a lot of bands. And uh, this associate of mine started managing Fleetwood Mac. So he called me up one day and said, hey, I've got to go on the road, and he had to handle Al Jarreau for a while. So he asked me if I wanted to take care of Fleetwood Mac. And that was it. I didn't know much about it. I just went out and started doing it and learned on the road. But, but you know, I, I'd been working in the industry for quite a while, so I knew what it was all about. Well, you were the tour manager for several 
very well-known bands before. I'll just say agreeing to manage Leonard Skinner. We'll get to that in a second. But can you list a few of the other bands that you were associated with? Well, uh, it was funny because I, I didn't do all of that much tour management. I did handle uh, Fleetwood Mac, um, helped Peter Frampton for a while. And in some of these bands, such as Peter Frampton and Fleetwood Mac, I was actually with them before they made it big. So we were kind of driving around in station wagons and just getting around the best way we could. We couldn't even afford commercial air. So we drove around in station wagons with both Fleetwood Mac and Peter Frampton. And I made these great decisions of leaving these bands because it was a struggle, you know, and I decided to go uh, to greener pastures. So I left these huge bands. And uh, as soon as I left them, they went straight to the top. <laughs> but, you know, I was fortunate enough to leave Fleetwood Mac and join Leonard Skinner, just as Leonard Skinner was really, uh, I guess they were crowning at that time. And when I joined them, we were selling the 2,500 to 5,000 seat halls. When I left them, we were doing concerts and stadiums, anywhere from 50 to 500,000 people. Well, in and your... We, Oh, sorry, go ahead. We, we, we had, uh, you know, in Nebworth, England, we opened for the Rolling Stones. And that was that show, at the time, it was estimated there were 500,000 people there. Since then, it's been downgraded to about 300,000. But uh, that show, we opened for the Stones, and the Stones wouldn't follow us. They waited four hours for that crowd to calm down before they'd take the stage. Because they didn't want to be blown away by Leonard Skinner. You know, that, that's not the Stones. And... Uh, the next day, in spite of their delay and, and letting the crowd cool down for that long, the next day all the papers said the same thing, Skinner skinned the stones. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really good. Yeah, downgraded to a mere 300,000. Yes, uh, a mere 300,000. And if you've ever seen 300,000 people going nuts, I mean, they just went absolutely nuts when, they, when the band played Freebird. And uh, it is an amazing sight, and one I will never forget. That's well, a lot of people to be rocking out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and a band known for its live performances. Uh, you couldn't, I don't think, this is just my own personal opinion. I'm a, a kind of a teenager during the 70s, during the, the time Leonard Skinner did make that ascension that you talked about. And I don't think I ever saw a, a band back then that did not have just an incredible live show from a musical standpoint. I see a lot of shows now where there's a lot of what I'll call, well, maybe it's just entertainment value, and I'm an old fart now, but uh, I remember the shows back then just being intense and, and over the top, and the, and the time that, that I got to see Leonard Skinner, you know, I'll never forget it. Right. Yeah, well, it was a funny thing, and, uh, you know, it's it's all recorded in the book, of course, and Skinner, it was the music, it was the performance, it wasn't the show. And I, I at the last tour, the, the uh, Street Survivors tour, tour of the Survivors, and uh, the last tour I was trying to talk them into some production value. And so I had uh, all the stuff brought in for, for the first show on that tour. And, uh, you know, it changed the stage setup and this and that. And after the show, the band said, hey, you know all that stuff you brought in? Drop it. <laughs> <laughs> they could do it. They didn't need anything at all. It was it was the band's performance. 
and it, it is one of the most exciting things. And I think that band is the most exciting live act I've ever worked with in my life, and I've done a lot of shows. Uh, they did not need any anything. They just needed a place to plug in and a sound system, and boom, they were good to go. Well, at first you had some trepidation in kind of signing on to be the tour manager of the band. I guess the guy before you, they broke him. Uh, can, uh, that is correct. Can you talk about your your reticence a little bit in uh, signing on with these guys? Well, you know, I to tell you the truth, at that time when they when the um, the, the band's lawyer approached me, and he also handled Fleetwood Mac, and that's the way I got it. So he uh, came to me and they asked because Fleetwood Mac wasn't working; they were going back into the studio. And then he approached me and said, "Hey, you want to manage Leonard Skinner?" Now I had done a couple of shows with these guys, but I hadn't really paid much attention to them because I was working every day staging concerts. It's surprising, but I didn't get to listen to a lot of music. Um, I just didn't have time. I was listening to music every night. The last thing I wanted to do when I was off is listen to more music. Right. So I wasn't really up on the current scenes. You know, I watched the charts. I knew who was charting and everything, and that's how we chose our ex. But uh, Alan approached me and said, would you help me with Leonard Skinner? Nobody can handle him, and I think you're the only person out there that could handle this bunch. And he kind of stroked me enough where I went, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> and so I signed on for three weeks, a three-week tour. And, you know, two years later, I was still with him, and we had the uh, unfortunate crash. But it was an amazing thing, and uh, like I said, I didn't know who these guys were. I had to take an album cover with me on the flight to meet them because I didn't know who they were and I didn't know the, any of their names or anything about them. And so I, I got all my information from liner notes and some press that was sent to me so I could learn a little bit about what I was getting into. Now, I did know they had a, a rough reputation uh, that, that preceded them, and I, I did know enough about them to, to know I was getting into the soup. And... Uh, you know, sure enough, I mean, my first day was a, a big test just to see uh, how I could take it. And and like you said, uh, when Alan Arrow asked me to join and asked me to do this job, he did tell me that they had broken the last tour manager. And his, his exact words were, they bankrupted his mind. <laughs> well. So... <laughs> Well, you would eventually get to know all of them quite well. It's interesting, a, a three-week tour, not not unlike a three-hour tour. And, and the band apparently started singing a song to the tune of Gilligan's Island, uh, yeah, which included you in the lyrics. Uh, the uh, rock bands uh, back then and now even uh, attract a lot of jet setters, athletes, movie stars, and your book is just full of such accounts. Uh uh, meeting a young Linda Blair, uh, one of the band's members brought her backstage. Have you ever been, because you've been around, you know, as you mentioned, Fleetwood Mac, Leonard Skinner, have you ever been starstruck or in awe of someone's presence that's uh, happened upon you in your journeys? Well, you know, I tell you, the, not of a um, musician. When I met Jack Nicholson, I was a bit awestruck. And, uh, because he's my favorite actor. You know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was the first film I saw him in. And I've just loved him from day one. So when I, I had the opportunity to meet him, and uh, that was the only time I was really starstruck. Uh, 
fortunately, we became uh, fairly good friends at that time, and I haven't talked to him in many, many years. But we hung out, you know, together a bit uh, in England. And I'm not sure what he was doing over there. I assume he was doing a film. But, uh, you know, that was the only time. Uh, performers and musicians, no, I don't get starstruck. And, in fact, the ones that you would get starstruck by are usually the biggest assholes. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you could meet. And those are the ones that kind of demand people hold them in awe. But for the most part, most musicians are just down-to-earth people that happen to choose a career of making music instead of uh, going to an office or going to a construction site every day. And, and yourself as well. I mean, one of the really refreshing things about your book is that, uh, like most people, it's a job after a while. There's no uh, veneer to it or anything like that. You're there to do a job. It's a day-in, day-out, 24-7 devotion when you're on the road, and your book approaches it just like that. It is a job. You know, when I wrote that book, I, um, it's a little bit different from a lot of the books out there. Uh, on rock stars and, and the music business and everything, because my whole thing was taking the reader and what reader, you know, what fan of rock music or music in general doesn't want the experience of going on tour. So my whole idea was I want to place them on tour. I want to take them back in time, do a little bit of time travel, and hit the road back in the mid-70s and actually place them right there beside me. And uh, evidently from read a response. I was very successful in that. So I'm quite proud of the book. It turned out uh, exceptionally well. Well, mission accomplished. Uh, you know, I, I stayed, I should be mad at you. I stayed up all night. I could not, not put it down. Uh, it, it is a fine, fine piece of authorship. You are an outstanding writer. Uh, I particularly like how you weave the narrative of that fateful day throughout the book. And uh, as we got to know these people uh, through your eyes, it, it's just a it, it's just a wonderful book. Um, this was a hard partying time of rock and roll, and you were with I would say the King Kongs of that particular endeavor. Jack Daniels might as well be a character in the book. The band liked that libation so much. Uh, the you know drugs, drinking, women. There were a lot of all three, and your book has one or two instances of brushes with the law. What was your secret to keeping these guys out of the slammer or out of the paper? It was uh, there was only it really wasn't a secret. It's the same thing that's used today. It was money. Uh, basically, you can I found when you can buy yourself out of pretty much anything, and that that doesn't mean you're going to go to graft and uh, pay off uh, you know policeman or anything there's always an attorney there with enough muscle if you pay him enough he's going to get you out of a situation and you know luckily we were never busted to the point where it was a big publicity thing or anything there were there were some encounters and uh, you know it's it's well known the industry was uh, rife with drugs and drug use and alcohol back then and thank god it's cleared up somewhat today but uh, these guys were heavy drinkers, you know, they, they were heavy users. Um, when you're in that type of lifestyle, you are, like you said, you're working 24-7, and you don't get much sleep. When you're doing back-to-back -back gigs, you're, when you're not performing and rehearsing and doing sound checks or doing interviews and going to radio stations, you're sleeping and uh, are partying. <laughs> so, uh, you know, to maintain that lifestyle, it did take uh, a few uh, 
recreational drugs that could uh, keep you up. And, you know, it's unfortunate, and I certainly don't condone drug use. And at the time, we really didn't know any better. And cocaine was a prevalent drug in not only the music industry, but throughout the country. It was just, you know, it was just there. It was easily obtainable. And it was before, you know, at that time, it made you feel good and it kept you up. You could do things. Um, that was before uh, people figured out how bad it was for you. You know, and I, I certainly haven't done any in many, many years. And uh, looking back, it's, it certainly wasn't worth it. And people tend to take better care of themselves today when they're in that position. Well, and I think that the uh, viewpoint of, of a lot of the artists and, you know, uh, a lot of the people in the industry is now we don't want to cut open the goose that laid the golden egg. They're, they're more protective of those properties uh, because they saw what happened, you know, during that time period. I'm uh, particularly struck by how uh, respectful you were in a couple uh, of occasions uh, with law enforcement and how that got you off the hook. And then the one instance where <laughs> the door was slammed on the tour bus for lack of a warrant, and <laughs> right. and off went the bus, and uh, everything on the bus was very quickly disposed of. Right. And, you know, looking back at that incident, I think that was exactly what they had planned, you know. Uh, they didn't have a search warrant when we got pulled over. And uh, when they opened the door of the bus, you know, a huge billow of marijuana smoke comes out. And... Uh, these guys, uh, you know, they, they asked if they could board the bus. And, of course, our driver had been out there for a long time. He knew his rights, and he barred entrance until they could get a warrant. And so they told us, well, you will be pulled over shortly. You know, their radio can outrun our bus. So we were preparing for that and pretty much washed ourselves clean. There was nothing left on that bus. It was clean as a whistle, and we never got stopped again, so... We were a little bit upset about that at the time, but, uh, you know, and, and like you said, I, I became friends with a lot of law enforcement. I had good, good friends all over the country in law enforcement because you do work with them in security details. And we did do security briefings before shows and, you know, made sure that it wouldn't get in trouble and made plans in case there was an uh, accident or the, the crowd became unruly. And, uh, you know, we were precautious with that. I was very uh, into that. I, you know, it was, it was not a matter of getting, of the band being harmed. It was also this, the crowd, the fans being harmed. So you do have to make plans like that. And unfortunately, it becomes lack from time to time. as the, the whole security thing gets a little bit lax, not from the standpoint of keeping the audience from the band. But uh, if you look at, you know, what happened with Great White and there's been incidents of riots and fires and, you know, over the years that, that happens. So it's, a, it's really a safety issue, safety for the band, safety for the crowd. And I was always quite concerned with that. And a lot of people, you know, because I was the guy that signed for the plane and made the decision to uh, fly on that uh, fatal day, uh, you know, I always question my, my, my decision on that. And because I was so, I was security uh, conscious. And for me to, to kind of go lax on that, although I really wasn't, you know, I've done thorough research about the safety of the plane and the safety of flying at that time. 
and the fact is we did not crash due to a mechanical problem. Uh, it was it was pilot error and the pilots I had no control over. But you know it, that that I live with every day, and uh, I shouldn't have uh, let that plane fly that day. But but I made a mistake. Uh, you know it caused uh, a lot of damage. Well, your book discusses a lot of very personal relationships and dynamics with with Leonard Skinner and other bands. Did you have a degree in psychology to wrangle all these egos, all these great interactions that are in your book? You just seem to be uh, somewhat masterful at, at getting the outcome that you wanted. And when you couldn't, we're, we're riding the storm out, uh, so to speak, uh, when this went on. Uh, what was it like to, to, have to, to have to, you know, be the person that was the arbiter of all these interactions? Well, it, it, was, it was kind of like a politician, I think, you know. You have a lot of people tugging at you in different ways, and all the, the band members themselves tugged me in a hundred different ways. So it was, it was a matter of uh, discipline and just uh, trying to make the right decisions and uh, you know, it, it's kind of like politics. You, you're answering people. You, you want to answer with what they want to hear, but at the same time, you have to manipulate the situation where it doesn't appear that uh, you know you're, you're giving the answer people want to hear, but you're doing what you think is right. And, and by the way, I'm a write-in for president, so write me in on ballot day. <laughs> No, it it is. Uh, I vote for you. I have been watching the debates. I, you you. I'm just reading your book. You seem to have better sound judgment than than anyone running right now. So, yeah, you. It is. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of people and a lot of things, and it's really boils down to one thing. You have to take care of business first. You have to do. Uh, you know, I was working for the band. I was working for their management company at the same time. And that right there was a political situation. And uh, as you know from reading the book, the band was very upset that I was working for the management company. And uh, they, they thought, you're either with us or against us. And if I was working for the management company, I was against them. Now, I don't know how that works and how they figured that, because the band, the management company works for them also, you know. Mm-hmm. But... Um, <laughs> Back then, it was a very strange uh, attitude. You know, the band, the, the manager was almost like the enemy. And uh, I, 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 to this day, I don't understand that because it's all about advancing their career. But, you know, the, the managers do want to maximize the money. And, and a good manager will do that. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it is not a nonprofit organization. We have to. <laughs> You know, that's all there is to it. And it was a quite a task back then just to make any money at all. Uh, tickets were five fifty, six fifty, seven fifty, sometimes eight fifty. You know, eight dollars a minute. I'm not talking about eight hundred and fifty dollars like it is now. Right. Eight dollars and fifty cents to go see a concert like that. And uh, you know, that that's pennies. And you know, and I think the music industry has been uh, hurt quite a bit, especially the concert industry by the excessive ticket prices these days. You know, back then you could go see two or three concerts a month. You could always see your favorite band, and you're, you pay $8.50, maybe $10 tops. And uh, now you can choose one or two concerts a year, and that's all you can go see. So back then it was like a habit. It was, it was a concert habit, and you went out and saw performers. You know, now, now it's... Uh, just, you know, 
um, I really disapprove of the ticket prices these days. Well, and, but and, I understand, you know, tickets are expensive, and uh, groups do have to make money. Well, and the, I, there's no middle ground anymore. It seems like you either see a band, you know, playing an open mic, uh, and then the next day they're playing, like you say, the the giant giant stadium or the 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 show you can't go to because you can't afford it. There's no, you know, 500 seat place that, uh, you know, I saw Jay Giles one time in a bar. Uh, yeah. This was during the the uh, Love Stinks era, uh-huh. and uh, they they played a, about a 500, 750 seat place, and uh, right. th- there is no middle ground anymore. No, there really isn't. You know, it's a shame. Um, you know, there obviously there's a certain amount of greed in the industry. It's no longer for the fans so much. Uh, it's for taking the fans' money. And I hate to say that, uh, you know, I'm not putting down these acts that have gotten that greedy, but they have. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, on the other hand, um, it's it's fan loyalty also. And, you know, if you take care of your fans, they're going to be loyal to you and they're going to follow you. And as I had given Ronnie advice at the end of the, the original Leonard Skinner's career right before the crash. And I was telling Ronnie, because he wanted to be a country singer. That was his real goal. He was, uh, his next move was going to be country. And I'm not saying it would be right after the last album, but, you know, in in the future. And I just told Ronnie, you know, you don't want to, we're on top of the world. You don't want to stop this Leonard Skinner thing. Keep it going. When you really think you can't do it rock anymore, Go country, but take Leonard Skinner with you and just just slide over to the country thing, which would be an easy transition because they were doing, really, they were doing, uh, they call it southern rock, but mm-hmm. but it was really kind of country rock, you know. It was more rock than country. Sure. But at the same time, you know, it was rock with a country flavor. It was that southern fried rock and roll. Yeah, southern fried rock, that's it. And, you know, there's a lot of good southern rock bands out there these days. And because that genre was kind of died with with Leonard Skinner to a certain extent. Uh, It left a big hole that has yet to be filled. And I think there's room for Southern Rock again. Oh, you're you're preaching to the choir here, brother. I mean, uh, uh, we're down here in Texas, and I mean, uh, the the music here is is a combination of all that, and I can't get enough of it. Your your book uh, kind of has... I'm just going to make another tip of the cap to you here you are so logical when dealing with these folks even when they're you know dead set on something you just seemed able to express you know kind of the right thing to do in a way um that i have always sought out in in a a female which is how can you tell me something i don't want to hear without pissing me off right well you know i i Honesty first is the best policy. I mean, if you're honest, you aren't going to get screwed up, and um, you know you're just going to lay it on the line. And so, first of all, you, you just have to be terribly honest with people. And you know, if they ask me questions, whether good or bad, I'm going to give the honest answer. You know, and and as far as kind of manipulating them, it's uh, you want to make them think it's their idea, you know, and kind of shift your own uh, judgment towards them and get them to see things from your point of view. And so that's very effective with with 
anybody in life, you know, if you can explain. Now, you know, the, the, the political, I have to mention this because we're in the middle of an election, and the political climate, you know, this, this country is so um, split. Oh, yeah. Uh, this year, I mean, this is probably the worst I've ever seen it. And, uh, you know, and it's it's why Congress can't get anything done. It's that split. And, you know, the Republicans want to block everything that's being done by the Democrats. The Democrats aren't too keen on the Republicans. You know, it's a terrible situation because, uh, you know, people have to work together. And, and until people work together, regardless of who wins the election, regardless of uh, political affiliations. It's you have to work together and come up with uh, some consensus point of view on things, and that's the way it has to be in, in most businesses. And with a, with a rock band, it's the same thing. Now, you know, I think the present Leonard Skinner, and this is getting way off track, but uh, I want to express myself a little bit here. The the present Leonard Skinner, uh, to me, they've that um, really attach themselves to a very conservative and right-wing political view. And I'm not saying that's wrong with anybody. It's the fact that they are aligning themselves with a one political point of view. I, I just don't think bands and celebrities should align themselves with any political point of view because they're going to lose half their fans mm-hmm. one way or another, you know, right or wrong. Um, expressing their own politics is just a, not a good thing for performers because you're going to lose. Well, it's a bad you know? b- business decision at that point. It's a bad dis- business decision, and I, I don't know why people do it. Look at what happened to, uh, oh, what was the... The Dixie Chicks. The Dixie Chicks, yes. Um, that really hurt them terribly. And, you, you know, I don't know why people can't realize they have to keep their politics to themselves and and that goes along probably with religion as well you know you you just don't want to alienate people and uh, at least in in religion you know most of them are christians and and then you know the population of america is primarily christian so it's not that big a thing but at the same time uh there are other religions out there that uh, have a right to survive so well, like politics. Yeah, and and I don't necessarily want to factor that into the music. Uh, you know, no. it's it's something where, especially as you say right now, it's not like I mean, politics has always been combative to some degree, but there seemed to have been a middle. We're going to meet in the middle. We're both of us are going to compromise, and now it is so entrenched that you know it's not. I think I'm right and you're wrong and here's why. It's I think I'm right and I think you're evil. Exactly, and, right. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I think we're about as entrenched as we can get. It's uh, almost civil war uh, these days. Um, but um, life on the road, we talked about it a little bit. I think Jackson Brown did 75 songs about life on the road. What would be the thing that the average person probably doesn't realize about the grueling nature of being on the road. Well, I, you know, I think most people look at it as a very glamorous life. You know, it's a, and, and to, on one hand, it kind of is because you're riding around the limousines, you get whatever you want, uh, you, you know, people cater to you. But most people have no idea how grueling it is. 
when you're working 16 hours a day and then traveling another three hours a day, you know, you're, you're on the road, um, you're getting three to four hours sleep for days at a time. And it is a very, very tough life. And most people, I'm sure, don't, do not realize it because, you know, even the bands who come up in the limousine, you know, they, they drive in, pop out of the limo, do a little bit of tuning and warm up backstage, go on and do a show. Then they're popped back into the limo and get in their planes and go to the next gig or their buses. And, uh, you know, it seems like they don't have a whole lot to do. But the fact is they're writing songs from hotel rooms. They're going to radio interviews, uh, TV stations. It's a gr- very grueling life. It's uh, tough for anybody to live uh, without any sleep, and that's what performers have to do. And you know, most most of them, it's a little bit easier these days. But back in the 70s, you know, we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have fax machines, we didn't have internet. There was none of that stuff, so it was much harder to do because uh, not only did we have to do all this traveling and everything. I also had to do a lot of business, which means after the show, I'd spend two hours or so doing book work, accounting, keeping track of all the money, making sure that was on track, uh, looking at schedules, making sure all of our schedules were on track. And, you know, the, you never knew when we'd get thrown out of a hotel. So that's, <laughs> that's the wild card that was uh, up there. So, you know, it's not really a glamorous way to live at all. And especially when it, when you have you do a run and you're running out of you, you've had no days off, you know you're just working, 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 because then you've got laundry issues to deal with mm-hmm. and things like that, that that the average person doesn't even think about. They have a washer and dryer. Mm-hmm. Right? You send your clothes out to have them laundered by the hotel. If they if the hotel delays at all, you'd have no clothes for a week before they catch up with you again. Well, and you were dealing with cash, hard, cold cash back then. I mean, it wasn't like it is now where I'm sure they just deposit money in some sort of account and off you go. Uh, And you had the, uh, you know, great task of you mentioned uh, getting kicked out of the hotel. Uh, Frequently, there was a substantial bill for, shall we say, damage. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, you always hear about rock groups, you know, throwing TVs out windows and stuff and destroying a hotel room. Well, with Leonard Skinner, it was destroying a whole floor, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it usually wasn't one room. It was like a whole floor or two. So um, the, the hotel bills were just massive uh, on occasion. If we had a day off, it was a huge dangerous signal. Because <laughs> the band took the... The night before, that means, you know, they could stay up and really party hard. Not that they didn't party harder every night, but uh, when they had a day off, they had, didn't have to worry about getting up early in the morning. So those, uh, you know, those were my nightmare days is when we had a day off the next day. And, uh, you know, to me, I'd look forward to the day off because it, I'd catch up on sleep. Uh, and most of the band did also. But uh, usually it was... Um, putting out fires, you know, literally sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it, it's a whole different world out there. And then, uh, and traveling with these guys, you know, they, they were terrors, you know, they, they, I mean, imagine this, take a bunch of mid 20 guys, you know, guys in their mid twenties, um, give them all the Jack Daniels they could drink, uh, give them, you know, all the recreational drugs they could ask for. 
give them pockets full of money, and sit them loose on the streets. (laughs) (laughs) It's a recipe recipe for disaster. disaster. (laughs) There you go. Um, Well, naturally, such a job is capable of taking a personal toll on you yourself. How did that whole experience affect you personally? Yeah, well, it did. Uh, It's mostly in my relationships with um, women. And uh, my first wife, we got married, and she knew what she was getting into to some extent. So we, I think I saw her a couple of months the first year we were married. And um, with a new marriage like that, you know, we, we we just drifted apart. And so that marriage didn't last too long at all. And then my second wife, uh, she happened to be my personal secretary, so she knew a little bit more, knew what she was getting into, and, and that marriage lasted uh, a good length of time. It uh, lasted far past the Leonard Skinner years. But it did uh, take a serious toll on, on relationships. You know, my, my parents, I didn't talk to them for a couple of years when I was with Leonard Skinner. And it was because at that time, you know, they were very straight-laced and grew up very conservative. And I was in rock and roll, sex, drugs, and rock and roll was all they heard about. So they weren't too pleased with me. And then I enlisted my two younger brothers into the business. And that's when my parents really quit talking to me because not only did I get involved in this corrupt business, but uh, I I brought my my siblings into it. So, you know, I was not, um, you know, my mother wouldn't even tell people what I did for a living. Oh, wow. You know, yeah, she she just said, oh, yeah, Ron's on, off on business trips all the time. And nobody knew I was out there with a rock and roll band in our family yeah. until after the crash, you know, and then it came out. And in fact, at the time of the crash, she told people I was in a business uh, plane and we crashed. Uh, she didn't at that time. Tell people that it was uh, a rock band. You know, now she's, you know, Leonard Skinner is heard all the time, a very famous group. Uh, and you hear, you know, their, their song is on Kentucky Fried Chicken commercials. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, you know, Sweet Home Alabama is one of the best, most well known songs in music. And, uh, you know, so now she's quite proud that I was with a group. Well, the, I mean, I it, it astounds me that the Ramones, Blitzkrieg Bop, I've, I've seen kids toys advertised with that hey oh let's go and yeah. uh when i was in high school if you listen to the ramones you were you might as well have carved a swastika on your forehead and said i love satan i mean they were so reviled at the time and now you know completely accepted you know nobody has right well you know even when i when i was in the you know i did the business there and I ran across the ramones I mean, they were, they were kind of just coming out at that time. And, uh, man, these guys were dark. It was mm-hmm. like they all black outfits and they were, you know, very goth-looking. You know, it wasn't known as goth back then, but they, they were a very dark and sinister-looking group. And, uh, you know, they were they were just rockers, you know. Mm-hmm. They, they had a, 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 you know, dressing their, they, they, their styling was dark. and uh, But, they, they you know, they were a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of bands like that. They were, they were just a lot of fun, and the, some of these bands took themselves far too seriously. But you know, because you you can't be that serious about what you're doing. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. it's entertainment, you know. And um, a lot of these bands just are 
are so heavy, and, and still to this day, you know, they they have these attitudes, and that, that's their image, and they they go over the top with it, and you know, I guess it's good publicity in some ways, but at the same time, you know, yeah, <laughs> you know, you, you, it's kind of like politics. You're turning off a lot of people with it, mm-hmm. you know. Well, can you describe a little about the members of the band as you recall them and, and what they were like uh, on and off stage? Oh, sure. You know, Ronnie Van Zandt, he was a very dear friend, and we just clicked from day one. I think Ronnie saw that I had a, a bit more sense than uh, most of the people he had been involved with, and he was very business-oriented. I, he was the leader of the band. He kept them intact. Without Ronnie Van Zandt, that band probably would have blown up and uh, you know the present uh, Leonard Skinner could certainly use uh, a guy like Ronnie Van Zandt in the band you know but Gary Rosington uh, runs the present Leonard Skinner and um, you know I don't say a whole lot about that they're a great band but uh, it's certainly not the same but uh, you know Ronnie Van Zandt was just a very sensible guy he was a real southern gentleman he was so respective. Uh, he respected women. He respected business people. He respected others around him quite a bit until uh, his buddy Jack Daniels uh, visited. <laughs> and then that all changed. But as long as he was uh, straight, he was the nicest guy you could ever meet. Just a real down to earth guy. Loved NASCAR, loved baseball, you know, loved sports, uh, all sports, but really baseball. And, uh, you know, he was just a real down-to-earth guy. When he had some time off, he was watching a race or watching a ball game, and uh, he'd hang out in his room most of the time. He didn't mix or hang out in my room, and uh, he didn't really party with the rest of the band that much. I mean, he would from time to time, but uh, he liked to stay by himself and just, uh, you know, he, he wrote a lot of songs on the road, and he was just a real, really nice guy. Now, Gary Rossington, who heads the present Leonard Skinner, again, Gary was just a little sweet little kid then. He was very uh, introverted. He was very quiet, and, you know, he uh, didn't cause much trouble at all. He would get into situations, but uh, uh, he, was a, he was a really, really nice guy. And, um, you know, Alan Collins, the other guitarist, was kind of a wild man. He was always getting into trouble. Just he, I think Alan kind of looked for trouble. And not because he was looking for trouble necessarily. He was just looking for fun, and the choices he made were trouble to mm-hmm. have fun. So, you know, and Alan was very opinionated and, uh, you know, a very tough guy that uh, I think he uh, was kind of wanted to be like Ronnie, but uh, he... He did it in such a bad way, you know. Uh, he was a little bit abusive to people or to me. And this is my opinion, you know. The others don't think this, I'm sure. But uh, that that's my encounters with, with Alan were always uh, very confrontational. And, um, you know, he had his ideas and he stuck to them and he wanted his way. He was a, a bit of a baby, in my opinion. But, you know, he was a extremely talented musician. I mean, just an insanely talented guy. So with people like that, you know, I, I bite my tongue and, you know, mm-hmm. let them do their thing. Uh, then we had uh, Artemis Pyle. And uh, the thing about Artemis, he 
he was a real health nut and uh, he was always saying you are what you eat you know and, and always <laughs> watching his diet and making sure he got sleep and exercise and stuff but uh, then uh, two days later he'd be dropping acid <laughs> so, <laughs> he was a bit of a wild man himself uh, Leon and Billy, Leon the bass player, Leon Wilkinson and Billy Powell, uh, one of the greatest keyboardists I've ever heard in my life, uh, were like Laurel and Hardy. They they were they always banded together, pulling pranks on everybody else, and you know it was a uh, great fun to have them around. Uh, at the same time, they caused plenty of trouble. You know, with Leon especially. Leon was a practical joker that wouldn't let up. Uh huh. And he was always giving everybody a hard time, always in fun. You know, it wasn't destructive uh, jokes or anything, although by accident they got destructive quite often. But he he just wanted to have fun. He was also our man on the street. He's the guy that turned everybody on to music. He listened to music constantly. And throughout his life, until the day of his death, he was always discovering new music and turning people on to it. I was uh, talking to the Bellamy brothers about a week ago. And uh, they were good friends of Leon's. And, you know, we had a long conversation about uh, him and how much music he turned them on to. Mm -hmm. uh, so it wasn't just uh, the Leonard Skinner group that Leon uh, passed this great stuff he'd discover on to, but it was other bands as well. I mean, he, he, he was the one that brought ACDC to my attention, you know, and that, that's one of my all-time favorite bands and still is. But he, it was all because of Leon sitting me down in his room and, turning me on to ACDC and not letting me leave until I heard every song on their album back then <laughs> two or three times, you know? Uh -huh. And uh, then we had Steve Gaines, the, the new guitarist, and I don't think I've met an individual as talented as he was. Um, when we auditioned him, and it was an audition by fire, the way we found uh, the third guitarist, which Ronnie wanted, after Ed King had left, was auditions. And they were live auditions. You've got uh, five minutes on stage with us. You, you cut it or you're out. And so Steve came up there and played, and Steve was just awesome. You know, we had had a lot of different musicians audition for us, Leslie West and uh, people like that, some pretty big-name guitarists back then. But uh, Steve just blew us away. And Alan Collins was one of the ones that really, the moment they walked off stage that night, Alan was going, that's the guy. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking that uh, that that was the guy as well, and so did Kevin Elson, our sound engineer. He said, "Man, that's him." Now, Ronnie, it took him a couple of weeks before we all convinced him that that was indeed the guitarist to have. And uh, Ronnie, you know, he wasn't even going to audition him, but Cassie Gaines was one of our backup singers. She was. Um, Steve's sister. One of the honkettes. One of the honkettes, yeah. She was she was kind of the leader of the honkettes. She really, uh, you know, that, that was her little thing. And uh, Cassie just kept bugging Ronnie and everybody. Let my brother audition. Let my brother audition. Finally, Ronnie said, get Steve a plane ticket. Man, I'm never going to have peace unless <laughs> I uh, go ahead and let this kid audition. <laughs> you know, and it was the best thing that ever happened. Boy, it was uh, he, he just brought new life into the band. Well, uh, let's talk about that fateful day in October of, of 77. Can you, you know, kind of go through your recollections of what actually happened? Um, you know, yeah, you know, it was a rough day from the start. 
um, we had had a backfire the night before. So we knew we had a problem. And, uh, you know, the plane did not crash because of a mechanical problem. Um, it crashed because we ran out of fuel. Now, the mechanical problem contributed to that because mm-hmm. it was a faulty magneto we had. So one of the engines was running very rich. And so we had it backfire the night before, and it was very scary. A big uh, fireball blew out of the engine. And it kept running, and, and the engines were running fairly smoothly. It wasn't like uh, they were sputtering or anything. But, you know, we did have a little backfire. It was kind of like if you had something in your fuel line where it sputtered a little bit and then a bunch of excess fuel got blown out of the engine. Mm-hmm. And so that's what happened. It scared scared everybody to death. So I had spent that evening after the show calling people and trying to figure out what to do and how bad this is. And uh, out of all the mechanics I talked to, I called uh, aircraft mechanics and pilots and the company we had uh, leased the plane from, and everybody said the same thing. They said, uh, you know, it's okay to fly. So we had a part and a mechanic uh, waiting for us at the next stop, which we didn't ever get to. So I made the decision, it's one I always regret, and uh, you know, it's something I have to live with is to go ahead and fly that plane. And I checked with Ronnie, and he agreed with me. He said, well, you know, we both believe in destiny, that we don't really have a choice. You know, it's nice for humans to think they have a choice and make decisions, but Ronnie and I both believe that the future is out there, and we just move towards it, and whatever choice we make is the one we're supposed to make. So he said, yeah, let's fly, man. You know, if, we, if we're in a bus and we crash, we'll die. So, you know, it doesn't make any difference. So let's fly. So, I, you know, I, I made the decision to fly. So that morning, it was very um, weird. The limos didn't show up at the right time. Uh, you know, we had no cars to take us to the airport. The pilots had left quite early to go make sure the plane was safe and to inspect those engines, run them a little bit, and uh, just prep the plane. And, you know, they were concerned because anytime you have a backfire, it's, uh, it's certainly something to be concerned about. Um now, the the it, the part that was faulty was magneto, and each engine had two of them, so there was a backup in each engine, and, um, you know, we had a twin-engine plane. We could run on one engine, and I knew that very well. I'd spent a lot of time with pilots, and uh, I was certainly not a pilot and didn't know that much about aircraft, but I had learned enough that, you know, I knew that plane had a great glide ratio and that we could even run without, uh, we could glide in most of the time, even if the engine, both engines failed. And, uh, you know, I certainly didn't expect an engine to fail at all in the first place. So we, uh, you know, we finally loaded up the plane, and Artemis Pyle, uh, the, the uh, pilots had fired it up, and we were sitting on the tarmac, and Artemis Pyle was an hour late getting to the plane that day. He decided we were close enough that he decided to visit home. So he was late, so we sat on the tarmac burning gas for an hour. And um, so the the fact is that the pilots had miscalculated the fuel for a couple of flights. So we were a lot lower on fuel than we thought. On the fuel gauge worked perfectly. You know, there was no problem with them. But uh, it's a calculation of fuel that pilots do to figure out how much they need. Because you don't fill up a plane. So it's terribly inefficient. You're carrying so much weight. It's mm-hmm. really to fly. So you put enough fuel in the plane, you know, to make your flight. And... Uh, have an adequate safety margin. 
and they had just miscalculated completely. And they miscalculated, and they, we sat on the tarmac for an hour. So all those factors contributed to us running out of fuel. So here we were at 15,000 feet, and we were about an hour outside of our destination of Baton Rouge, and the uh, engines backfired. And uh, then the uh, flight deck door flew open, and the co-pilot said, uh, prepare for an emergency landing. So, you know, that was scary enough. And then a few minutes later, he popped his head out again, and the engines were starting to sputter at that time. And uh, he popped back around and said, prepare for a crash landing. Mm. And you would think there'd be a lot of panic. There wasn't. Ronnie was laying down on the floor of the plane. And uh, Gene Odom, our security guy, woke Ronnie up and got him strapped into a seat. Artemis Pyle was running up and down, and in his panic, he never found a seat. But there was no screaming or anything. Everybody just went silent. And that was the quietest time. There was no engine noise, no vibration other than the air, and no noise except for the air rushing outside the plane. And, uh, you know, it was dead quiet. Now, I was in the very back of the plane. I was playing poker, and I had three direct employees of mine on that flight. And one of them uh, took our poker table, ripped it out of the wall, and uh, poker chips and money went everywhere and you know i guess i was winning i don't really remember but i, I remember the thought i had was how are we ever gonna straighten out this pot <laughs> <laughs> and then the other thing I, I looked outside you know i looked out the windows and there was an open field and there was a highway and then there was a forest so i figured the pilots would put it in down on this open highway and my thoughts were we're going to look very stupid with uh, 25 people hitchhiking down the highway. Mm-hmm. So I never thought we'd crash. You know, the whole way down, I just did not think we were crashing. And then we started hitting the trees. And we came down in the forest. For some reason, the pilots uh, didn't choose the highway or the open field. They hit the forest. And we started hearing the trees treetops hitting the plane. It sounded like machine guns going off. Mm-hmm. So that was the first time I knew we were going to crash. And uh, it's a horrific feeling to, to know that. And we were coming down, you know, we were traveling. Uh, we, we were coming in fast. and we, But we were gliding, you know. The, the plane did hold its glide ratio, so we did have time to get to a safe spot to either crash land in the field or put it down on the highway. But, um, you know, you never know what a person's going to do in an emergency situation. And I think the pilots just froze. Uh, they had already kissed their butts goodbye and decided we it was hopeless. And they just set us down in that forest. And, I, you know, I remember I heard the, the tree trops uh, being trimmed. And then the last thing I actually saw was the plane breaking in half. And I saw a blue sky at the top of the plane. And that's the last thing I remember for about a month. Although I did come, I did come too when I was being rescued. And I saw Ronnie lying on the ground. And he looked very peaceful and very relaxed. And the, I remember I had the thought that, uh, well, at least Ronnie's getting some sleep right now, even in spite of this crash and all the chaos. He's getting some rest. And then Dean Kilpatrick, my assistant, was laying, was also stretched down on the ground. And uh, 
you know, he, both of them died in the crash. And I remember getting a little upset with Dean. I, and I was thinking, uh, man, isn't that just like him? He's taking a nap during this crisis, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was a tough thing. And, uh, you know, after that, when I was in the hospital, I was in a coma for about a month. And I'd come to for a few seconds at a time. And this I know not from my own memory, but uh, from people that told me about it. And they said I would come to for 20, 30 seconds. And all I would do when I came to, there's four incidents, um, I'd wake up and utter the name of somebody that had died in the crash. And first I asked about Ronnie. And uh, they told me he had passed in the crash. And I went, boom, I went right back out. Then I woke up the next day and asked about Steve and, and Cassie and Dean. And so that that's, um, you know, it was like uh, they had brushed my life as they had left this world. And, you know, I knew about them, and they were the only ones I cared about and asked about. Mm-hmm. I didn't ask about any of the survivors. And uh, it, it was a very eerie and ironic thing, you know. But I, I think these things happen to people, you know. Um you know, you, you hear it all the time. They, you know, people know when somebody has died that, that maybe across the country, and uh, you know, their their parents or relative or close friend, and they just know it immediately before the call comes in. So there, there's a certain uh, telepathic uh, capacity humans have, I think. Well, and, uh, uh, you, you've mentioned, you know, uh, that you, you know, you you regret the decision and everything, sir. Please don't beat yourself up about that too much. I I, I think what you say is true, destiny, and and that uh, uh, certainly, you, you know, you can't, uh, you know, your your heart was not in in a bad place when you made that decision. Is it difficult? Every October 20th, it seems, you know, if you listen to music on the radio, read the paper, or watch a television news broadcast every year, October 20th, is that a tough, tough day for you and, and to hear that every, every year? Well, it is, but I don't listen to it. I tend to kind of isolate myself or surround myself with friends and not pay any attention to the date. This year I am because I've started this uh, moment of silence in honor of Ronnie Van Zant, because I think, you know, everybody knows about Leonard Skinner and Sweet Home Alabama, and, you know, there's not another song that has had that kind of staying power. Forty years after it was written, it's on heavy rotation every day, and so, you know, it's different, and so this year, because I wrote this book and everything, I'm having to pay a bit of attention to October 20th, and most years, I just kind of put it out of my mind completely. And so it's going to be a little bit more difficult this year. Uh, and, and as far as being responsible, you know, it's it's kind of like a, I'm sure uh, a military officer that uh, made a wrong decision and sent a lot of his men, you know, to their death. I'm sure they have that same feeling. It's not their fault. It's what they had to do. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but, but it, it lives with you, you know. And so I don't really beat myself up over it at all. You know, I regret it, and I think about it every day of my life. But it's something that's that you have to live with, and I've learned to live with it, you know. And I know it wasn't my fault. It, it's just a series of, uh, you know, the factors that went into us crashing, you know. But I do regret, you know, saying it's okay to take off, you know. I mean, one thing I would never do now is if I was in that same position again and there was a mechanical problem of any type, you know, that, that had to do with flight safety, 
I certainly would ground a plane. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's something, and that, you know, that's something you learn. And uh, I just didn't have that knowledge or that uh, foresight. I uh, didn't really know enough. And I didn't operate the plane. You know, I didn't fly it. I didn't calculate any fuel. I had no hand in that. So, but I did say, yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and fly. So, you know, it's something I live with, and it, it's okay. It doesn't eat me up or anything, and I don't beat myself up over it. I uh, live the, as good a life as I can. Now, do you do you fly now? And if so, what was the first time you flew, you know, after the accident? Like, yeah, I fly all the time now. It's completely gone. Uh, any fear of flying, um, except for fear of flying uh, long flights. And that isn't because I'm afraid of flying. It's just I don't want to spend that much time on a plane, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> going to Europe or something. But I do fly all the time. And the first flight I took after the crash was from the hospital in Macomb, Mississippi, to the hospital in Houston. And so, you know, of, of course, I didn't even know I was flying at that time. They had me so uh, drugged up um, that, uh, you know, they knew better than to try to put me on a plane conscious. So they, they I was pretty uh, subdued on that plane. Uh, but, you know, for several years there, I, I still had to fly. You have to get around, and especially if you're in a business, and I stayed in the business a few years after the plane crash and uh, have re-entered the business now. But uh, I would sometimes get it right down the jetway, right to the door of the aircraft and go and get a bad feeling. And I'd just walk right back. I'd turn around and go right back to the ticket counter and say, I can't fly on this plane. And luckily, I would explain the situation, and they put me on another flight, no problem. But, uh, you know, that would happen. And, and nothing ever happened to those planes when I got that feeling. You know, it's just a bad feeling I had. So, um, well, you know, the, 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 and it, but now I fly all the time. It doesn't bother me at all. So. Well, you mentioned that you're, you've reentered the business. What else are you doing when you're not writing uh, extremely captivating uh, books about your experiences? And are you working on any other books? I am. I'm writing a book called The Taste right now. It's another true story. It's about a huge drug deal in Texas that went bad in the 60s. And uh, it involves uh, a lot. I actually interviewed uh, the, the individuals in the Mexican mafia. I interviewed... Uh, DEA agents, FBI agents. I interviewed uh, people that were involved in that. So that was a kind of a scary interview process that I did about five years ago. And uh, I've got everybody's stories. I've uh, started on the book already. I should be finished in about six months. So I'm doing that. Um, Another thing I do, uh, some uh, people have talked me out of uh, retirement in the music business and uh, I've just been named CEO of Sunset Island Music Management. Wow, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that. It's a great organization. It's a publicly listed company. And uh, it's um, it started as a social networking site for musicians. But it's a, as, we, uh, as it has developed, it has grown into a very good uh, promotion company. And the musicians and the groups that it uh, that are selected get uh, a lot of publicity and a lot of push from the group uh, from Sunset Island, and they get uh, they have radio stations with about one and a half million listeners, and so these groups can uh, actually be heard and uh, get get a lot of uh, boost to their careers, and so once uh, the 
fellows that started that business uh, looked around. They they realized they have 950 plus bands registered on the site, which they're uh, providing services for. They thought, well, let's um, pick out the best of these groups and go ahead and really get them out there and manage them. And so I was tapped to do that. So I'm very excited about that. I mean, imagine being in the position to choose and make your pick, the cream of the crop of about 950 bands worldwide. Well, obviously, they've they've chosen a guy with the proper experience and know-how. I know we've already taken up too much of your very valuable time. We do a thing at the end of the show called Lightning Round where I ask about... Ten questions. They're very quick answers. If you're willing, I'll I'll ask you those questions. Shoot, uh, there's no telling what I'll answer. Okay, <laughs> that's what we want. Okay, uh, let's see here. Favorite favorite live band that you did not manage. Favorite live band. Um, that's a tough one. I, you know, I love the Wallflowers. Okay. Uh, favorite Leonard Skinner song? That has to be Freebird. First record you bought with your own money? The Animals. Oh, awesome. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What was your first car? My first car was a uh, 63 Chevy, I believe. Uh, Bel Air. Awesome. Uh, what was the most ridiculous request ever made to you by a band member? That that's a tough one because there are <laughs> they're all ridiculous <laughs> I guess uh find me something to do in the middle of the night when they're when they can't sleep also they call me and expect me to be their entertainment director. I gotcha. Yeah. Um what is your favorite guitar make and model? I love Les Pauls. Okay. Uh, I, and I, you know, actually, I have a um, '57 Telecaster that I really love. But uh, Les Pauls, uh, those Gibsons, they're awesome. Uh, how many concert T-shirts do you own? Surprisingly, very few. I th- I would say I'm down to about four, and that's because I've turned over my whole collection of memorabilia to my daughter. Okay. And those are she's probably got several million dollars worth of t-shirts because those those old ones go for big money now yes she actually has ronnie van zant's uh one of his last hats in a a nice case uh, that i've given her and that that was that uh, half was rescued from the airplane crash has hydraulic oil on it were you ever in a band as a player yourself i was i performed in a band called black eagle and uh, our singer was arby greaves who passed away a, a couple of weeks ago and he was famous for the song Take a Letter Maria. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, what is your favorite place to eat on the road? Ooh. Um, I like lobster. Any place that has good lobster. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I'm proud to say you answered all those questions correctly. So, oh, well, good. I get an A. Yes, you do. <laughs> uh, well, sir, it has been a, a, just a complete pre- pleasure and an honor to speak with you today. I encourage everybody to go get uh, Ron Erkelman. Wait, wait, wait. i got to do it. Ron Erkelman. 
Ron Eckerman. Uh, yeah, Ron Eckerman's book, um, uh, Turn It Up. You can go to turnitupbook.com. It's available there. And boy, if you love rock and roll, if you love Leonard Skinner, or you just want to be, as you say, kind of right there on tour in, in the mid-70s, uh, this is the book to get. And I thank you so much for your time today. Well, you're quite welcome. I really enjoyed it. Uh, uh, like, like I said, get the book it's a magical mystery tour that's far more magical than the beatles mystery tour i should also point out that that the spoken word version of it is available as well and uh i would encourage people to check that out too if you're a fan of that because uh there's a a snippet of it online and uh obviously you're a very uh eloquent and uh, well-spoken man as well as being a a masterful writer well thank you very much I, i appreciate that and, uh, you know, a, a quick story about the uh, spoken word book. I did a lot of voices in that book, and uh, about 20 voices. And at the very end, after recording it, we were about 300 hours into the project. At the, that last chapter, I told the producer, I said, man, I want to try something. He goes, oh, you can try anything you want. So I started doing voices. I did Ronnie Van Zandt's voice. And it worked. And so then we had to go back and re-record 100 hours of dialogue. It was, it was like recording 12 um, 12 albums, you know, in a few short months. So and now you know how the band feels. I do. I do. And, uh, it, it's a rough thing to do. I tell you to get, uh, things just right, you know, to try to get it perfect. Uh, you know, and then, uh, I certainly didn't get it perfect, but you know, we, we did a good try and it, it's a, it's a great little audio book, you know, people enjoy it. They seem to really love it, the audio book. And a lot of people buy the book and the audio book and just kind of read along with it. But they're not the same. There's a lot more in the audio book than there is in the book. So Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, sir, again, thank you. Best of success in your future endeavors. And uh, we very much appreciate having you here on the program. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, Yeah, I, I really had a good time. It's great reminiscing about this stuff. If I only had one word to describe this new series, it would be excitement. The drama will be about people caught up in a critical moment of life and death and presented as realistically and creatively as possible. We're tremendously excited about it. We think you will be, too. You're listening to The Tom Gully Show. That'll do it. Hot damn. This is entertainment. And it's free. So you can't really complain about the quality, now can you? But please, go to thetomgullyshow.com, follow me on Twitter at Atomic Palooka, like us at The Tom Gully Show on Facebook, and of course, you can always email me at tom at thetomgullyshow.com. Viewers of the Monday through Friday shows know they can send photos or audio files, and I will use them on the show, so send away. And again, very special thanks to Ron Eckerman. And you can get that absolutely riveting book, also available in spoken word form, at turnitupbook.com. Hey, if you like the show, why not tell a friend? It's not like it's a secret, you know. That's going to do it. I'm out of here. i got to go talk to some people. I will talk to you much later. Can't lift a twig for a dog that's nothing big, but he don't want to. 
And the dog can't grab a cat A raccoon can do all that But he don't want to And I dream of you at night While you hold your baby tight But he don't want you You can see it in his eyes From the way he tells you lies